When revolution rocked Romania in the aftermath of a deadly fire at a hip nightclub in Bucharest, Alex Nanau didn't know what movie he was going to make next. But the one thing he did know was that it was out there somewhere in the streets. So he rolled out with a camera until the story he needed to tell took hold of him. Using a filmmaking methodology that borrowed from the films of Mike Lee and the Maisels brothers, what came back was a powerful film called Collective. For documentarians, the curse of a culture can give birth to the blessing of a film. Sometimes, I think making these movies is our way of digesting the triumphs and tragedies and traumas that do not define us, but rather make us who we are. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Alex Nanow. Alex, thank you very much for taking the time today. I'm thrilled to meet you, and I think that uh, that film, uh, Collective, it was just absolutely astonishingly powerful and really captivated me and, and, and moved me in a profound way. So thank you for taking the time and joining us. Thank you for having me on, on, on the podcast. How did, how did this film begin for you? What's the, what's the point of origin for you? Oh, um, so there was for sure the event that started this um, movement, let's say, in a, in a young generation. And um, the event was perceived, you know, as a national tragedy, basically. It was a national tragedy because there were three days of mourning in the country. But what it did, it, it mobilized some, you know, suddenly a, a very young generation that organized through Facebook and, and took the streets and really, in a way, it, it felt when it all happened and because it was so emotional, because everyone was in it uh, and part of it in a way, um, it felt like a, the beginning of a change that I was waiting for since a long time in Romania, you know, for a young generation to really try to get rid of their parents political class, which is and still is a very um, heavy legacy. And uh, the fire was basically perceived as something that happened because of the corruption that that, that exists, because the, the venue, which was a very popular one, uh, had no fire exits, basically. So it could only function without fire exits because the firemen were bribed and the fire department was bribed to to uh, and and also the the district mayor uh, where it functioned to to let it function. So how soon after the fire do you begin to get the idea for a film, and how do you begin to find the center of it for yourself? I started pretty fast, basically, but I'm not sure that I started with the idea of a film in mind. I was on the streets with the camera when, when people took the streets pretty uh, uh, fast after the fire. Um, but so many things were happening at the same time. Suddenly, the whole society was in a constant movement that it was hard to see how one could make a film or what to make a film about. But for sure, I knew that it would be strong to make a film about what is happening, about this change that seems to start. Uh, but still, I was overwhelmed and, and didn't know for, you know, at least two weeks, three weeks what to, you know, what to really do. I was just filming, you know, around. Uh, and I think it was basically when, when the people started to die in hospitals that I and my team thought, like, we have to do something about it because it, it was so clear that 
everyone, you know, the authorities, the doctors together with the politicians, with the corrupt politicians basically were lying that they can take care of this burn patient. They refused, they blocked basically their, their transfer uh, to other European hospitals that had burn clinics. Romania had just one burn clinic and it was in a horrible state. I think within the film you can see uh, interesting recording with some maggots. <laughs> that's, that's stunning, uh, stunning. Yeah. That's one of the most stunning pieces of footage I've ever seen. By the time you see the, you know, the maggots in in the in the open wound that the doctor smuggles out. But stay with me for a minute in terms of finding your way into the story and the shape of a film. So you're out in the streets and you're shooting. And when do you begin to kind of get an angle on it in terms of the finding the journalist and? So the first thing was the first reaction was. Maybe the, the you know the point of view should be that of the people that were harmed by by this authority, so the parents and the, the survivors. Um, but still, it, it you know I was looking for something that could encompass also what is happening in society. So how could you describe this society? And it was this group of journalists that we see in the film that kept investigating, and although the press was at that time, very weak. Nobody knew how to ask the right questions, basically, because nobody knew what a burn patient is or what how a burn patient is supposed to be treated. So they believed the lies of the of the doctors. Um, and this group of journalists was who was basically famous already for bringing uh, ministers down and even their investigations leading to ministers being arrested and going to jail. And so I just gave it a try, called them, and we, we met them. And it was exactly how, how uh, I was told. Uh, they said, no way. I mean, nobody can enter the newsroom with a camera. We have to protect our journalists and our sources. Uh, but I said, you know, I explained what I'm doing. I mean, for sure they knew uh, who I am uh, because my films are known in Romania. Um, and uh, I just left word and said, like, if you know, if you happen to have a new investigation or anything coming up, just think about it and just you know call me. And they called back. So they called back after a while and said, listen, actually we have something. We are onto something, but we can't tell you what it is. And why? Why give you that access at that point? Why trust you? And what do you do to sort of prove that? Um, your work will not in any way negatively impact or interfere with the ongoing investigation. Talk about that sort of cultivation of sources, because in the same way they're cultivating their sources, you're cultivating them as subjects. Yeah, I mean, that's a very complex, let's say, um, number of reasons why it happened, I think. Uh, So what I learned later, for sure, once the relationship was more established, is that basically they actually thought because you know also didn't grow up in Romania and they actually thought um, that the secret service sent me basically to infiltrate their their newsroom and they thought how smart of them to invent this kind of story you know a filmmaker wants to make a film uh, and I understood it later for sure because they were already onto what we see in the film, and so they, they were uh, maybe a bit paranoid uh, in a healthy way. Um, and then there was another thing which they explained to me why they did it. They explained to me also later because they thought that, you know, having all this burden that the 
printed press is dying out and you know there's less and less readership they thought it might be a chance or a way to reach a young audience by letting a, a skillful filmmaker uh, you know tell show what they do and how they do show it. how journalism really works uh, and on the other hand, I think it was also the fact that they had no clue what it really means for us to follow them. So I think they thought it will happen in a couple of days, that we will stay with them. They never imagined that we will stay there for a month. So talk about that in terms of your process, the size of your crew and the ability, because I think one of the things that's so potent and powerful about your style of filmmaking is it is observational in in the almost like Maisel sense or the Pennebaker sense or and that direct cinema um, it, it also feels as as though it's full unfolding very naturally it's almost like a Farhadi film or something you like you you don't discern the impact of the camera on these very intimate things and how do you cultivate that and and, and what is your process Yes, thank you for all the references. I think uh, it's, it's uh, nice to hear that these are the, the filmmaking styles that it reminded you of. Uh, I really believe, you know, that there is no distinction really be between, you know, documentary and fiction. For, for me, it's all storytelling. So, um, but what I try to do is basically embed in the life into the life of, of the people I'm following, be it the journalists or the victims that appear in the film. Or, you know, these are all people we spend quite some time with. Uh, and what I do basically, I am bad with them and try to carve out while things happen, uh, you know, the best way to tell their daily story. Uh, so there's nothing in scene based. So I never tell people what to do or, you know, I just. Uh, use the time for them to become so comfortable with me that they are not bothered anymore by by my presence. And that said, the team is pretty small. So it's it's me, it's the sound man, it's an assistant that is basically around us that keeps the uh, the contact to the production office, where we would have a you know a producer that would take care of ongoing things and the team, for example, that. When the characters move, the assistant will say, you know, we move somewhere else, we would need access. So, okay, start making phone calls, you know, try to get access. And so I just try to organize the whole thing around me in a way that I can move freely with characters and film basically the story as life goes on. And how conscious of you are, uh, I imagine extremely, conscious of scene construction as you're shooting in terms of making sure that you've got the coverage that you need, entrances and exits to scenes. And do you ever um, sort of need to cross the line to make sure, or cross whatever line, to make sure that you have a complete scene as it's unfolding, or is it always unobtrusively done? No, no, I crossed the line. I mean, uh, I think that there are several examples in the in the film where you can see that you know it it looks like a fully um, uh, you know it looks like a, 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 as if I would have worked with a shot list basically, uh, which means that I you know as things evolve in front of me, I really what I do is basically I think as an editor. 
or as a scriptwriter, right? So I really evaluate, like after five minutes, you know, a thing that is happening in a room between people, I really think about, so who's leading here? What is the tension? What's the emotion? Who do I have to capture, you know, to understand the emotion of the situation or to understand the, the, the tension of the, uh, you know, sure, I listen to what they say and then I, I find the right time to, to change the angle so that I don't lose what I want to hear on the face of someone. So it's basically an editing and writing process as you film. So you really have to take very fast decisions and in your head you basically start to have this yeah, almost like a timeline, you know, where you think like, okay, that's, you know, after one hour, you know, that happened and that could be a scene. Is it a scene or do we need something? Would it need something to, you know, see them depart or whatever will come up? And then I stay longer, I wait. I, so it's, it's a, you know, it's a waiting game for, for most of the time, you know, to, to wait for the, for the things to happen. But also, for example, many times, you know, you feel that people lose their attention, right? That, that their mm -hmm. energy goes down. And then uh, I would just say like, okay, we stop, you know, we, we're not filming now. And then I would just go away with my sound man and um, try not to, you know, try to let the people recharge again. Or So I'm, I'm pretty aware basically all the time about what is happening, what I can capture, what I did capture what I would need to tell the story. And that also includes, sure, pickups, you know, like as in, in classic film uh, that I, I know I would have to film hands or when I see people playing around with things, I would, you know. So I just try to portray... I always describe basically my work as the work of, uh, you know, like a, of a street photographer in the end. You know, mm -hmm. I, I really just try to capture things and an atmosphere in the best possible way but for sure in a filmic language are you lighting at all and are you using boom mics or lav mics like what's the what's the what's the process i'm not so i'm not lighting i i really love um available light uh, but for sure i mean if i shoot as in the film for a long time in the newsroom i would i would check if the neon bulbs are all the same temperature, right? Not to, because otherwise it's it's a nightmare. It's distracting in, in, when you get into the in edit. color yeah. correction. Yeah. So that's the let's say that that would be the minimal uh, way of intervening with with lights. Uh, when I have a long time in a in a in a in a space, then I will take care of the of the light. Um, and for the mics, I wait a bit before I, I put uh, lavaliers on the people. Uh, because, you know, they are all real people. They are not, you know, it's anyway a thing to get over being filmed. I could not do that. I mean, if someone would film me, I would just be uh, like a rock, you know. <laughs> I couldn't you've, you've, you've just automatically conjured someone one day making a film about you and ending up on the <laughs> other end of, the, uh, you know, it just you heard it boring. here first. <laughs> You heard it here first, Alex. <laughs> it would be very, yeah, a very static film. <laughs> um, uh, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. So basically, I put my after a while when I when I feel that they're comfortable and they I can I can afford putting mics on them without them being distracted by it during the day. Then I do that. Uh, otherwise, you know, there's a boom operator behind me, and it's a very. Um, uh, 
it's a very i mean the way to work in observation with the, with the with the sound record is that it's also the boom operator at the same time right yeah. uh it's very delicate and it's very hard to find people that can really focus on what you're doing that really understand how wide or how close you just are on people how they would not disturb people again they are real life you know they are real people so if someone hangs a boom above their head they will get distracted so it takes a lot of uh, sensitivity for it uh, and the the thing in in the case of this film is that i think that's a, you know that's a great story and it was ba- basically a wonderful collaboration and so you know i think so fortunate that it happened i had a friend who i know i knew was in the club and he was friends with the band and was filming the concert with five cameras and he brought a team there to film the concert not all of them have survived and this friend of mine i heard that he was in hospital and that he was basically going to die uh but he didn't die because someone uh his girlfriend actually insisted uh with the doctors to put him on um artificial lung which the doctor did not use but they had it in the hospital but they never used it so he was the first patient they they used it on and that 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 um thing Save makes his life saved his life and this, this that uh, it's basically helping you not to use your lungs so it can recover right it 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 is breathing for you uh, and then one day i was in the office and still you know thinking about how to do things and i just had an impulse to walk into the studio of uh, of a friend who is one of the you know big romanian artists who is also was with moma all the time and uh and in his office i met this other friend that i thought was dying and he just got out of hospital and told his story and then i said listen and he's also a filmmaker right so he's also a documentary filmmaker and i said like listen i started making this film so why don't you join the band uh and so he became basically my sound man then oh brilliant he was your sound man he, so he was my sound man. It's interesting that you use the metaphor of joining the band too because that's exactly what I was thinking as you were talking about it. You have to have somebody that's able to kind of follow your chord changes and your lead and know how to tuck into what you're doing and be able it's almost like an improvisational jazz quartet or something where you have totally. to be able to to flow effortlessly as one. It's a dance. So um that footage that was shot which i which i think you made a couple of many amazing choices but that footage of the fire that you actually see which which um and you tuck it in a is some of the most astonishing and powerful kind of verite footage that i've ever seen and i noticed that you made the decision to tuck it in you know not opening with that scene but to to have a softer entry into the film talk about that editorial choice and why you did that Yeah so the footage is basically um it's it's horrifying i mean when i first saw the footage that's footage that are also uh basically mihai this friend that survived and became a close collaborator and also the soundman of the of the shooting he had that footage basically because it was from one of the five cameras they were filming with and so it was basically a black magic camera with a wide angle in front of the stage that the cameraman asked his girlfriend to safeguard it during the concert right uh 
And when everything happened, he was somewhere else with a bigger camera and she basically just pulled that small black magic camera out by its tripod. And that's how this recording happened, basically. And it goes into the tunnel where, you know, you know what happens there. Uh, and so the, the cameraman died. The girlfriend survived that, that pulled out the camera. Uh, the choice was hard. So it was, it was a long process. I was really not sure if to use it, if it's fine to use it, if it's morally responsible to use it. Uh, and we had many discussions. And I think it was also Mihai that encouraged me and said, like, you know, don't worry so much. You know, if you do it the right way, it can, it can, be, it, it will be fine. And in the end, I understood basically, and the reason I used it is because. I thought that, that it is the only way that viewers can understand how fast one's life can change. Because once you see that, you know, this fire that, it, like, within seconds, basically. It's instantaneous. Yeah, it's astonishing. Uh, that's the only way to, to really understand that it's, it's not just some people somewhere, you know, it can't happen to you because that's our first uh, reflex, basically, right? To think like, oh, that's, that's horrible, but, you know. It could never be me. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that was the only way, I think, to make people understand, like, to be in the middle of the thing and to understand what it feels like to be in the middle of the thing and what it means to lose control over your own life within seconds and then to be basically uh, dependent on a, on a functioning society or on a functioning, on functioning authorities, you know, right, that you never have in... Uh, you know, in corrupt countries. And the choice to, to not open with that scene, but to tuck it in early in the film, talk about that, like when do you make that, in the in making that choice editorially, and why? Oh, I think that's, you know, that's a, it's a thing I got to in the editing by understanding that dramaturgically, it, you know, if you open with that, it's, it's, anonymous people right going through that you're not if you're you have to be first emotionally connected to even if it's just to the story as such or what you know what someone wants to show you uh, if you just start with the fire it just becomes an anonymous uh, it's, it's abstracted you're not emotionally invested yet. right yeah so i think you have to see the parents before that uh, uh and also you know, I think also the surprise with which it happens within the within the film structure, and that you're suddenly in there without you, you don't even think about the fact you just think you're at some concert that is you know in the memory basically of these people. And are you cutting as you're shooting? What's your editorial process? Because I imagine your shooting um, your 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 shooting ratio has got to be very high because you're still sort of following where you're going. And then how do you approach editorial? Are you solo cutting everything? Do you work with an editor? What's your process? No, I work with an editing assistant, uh, basically that is organizing the whole project. But what I do a lot is I. I, in the evening, I come back to the editing room and I, you know, do a lot of color correction. Just, I, I, in the beginning, I try to understand what the form of the film will be and uh, how, it, you know, how it will feel and look. And so that's a period where I also experiment a lot with the footage. 
which also means coming back from, from a shooting day and knowing in your head, you know, oh, there's a great, I mean, there must be a good scene. So I know which the shots were. And so I start to assemble very fast and, and try to see if it works, right? If what so I you are cutting, so, yeah, so you, so you are cutting scene by scene. As you come home at the end of the day, you're going into the edit suite and you're cutting, okay, this, I know this scene, I have a feeling that this scene is going to play. And, and so you're constructing it as you go. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, it's, it, I mean, that is a, let's say a very rudimentary way of editing. It's, it's not profound, let's say. Uh, and I think that the profound editing phase starts actually when I when I feel I have finished shooting, not before because I can't focus on both things. And once we finish, we basic what we do is like we watch the footage, most of it actually, and mark it by scenes, by characters, by and then as in a in a script writing session, basically we start to understand. So what's the scene here? You know, what's the what? What are the relationships? What's the what's the story? So, no, after I finish shooting. So are are you? How long did you shoot for? Like, how many shoot days would you have from the time you sort of first walk out in the in the aftermath of the fire and the protests taking to the streets until you finish shooting? What's that shoot period? What's that shoot time? It was pretty long, I think. So it was end of 2015 to end of mid end of 2017 I think uh, which is a long time uh, but what you see in the film is shorter so in the end we decided to to finish the story much earlier than we have shot uh, it is only that in 2017 there was you know, it was still crazy, basically, and yeah, again, a lot of things happened, and they tried to to uh, destroy basically the legal system, and uh, there were a lot of demonstrations, even bigger. You know, the biggest demonstrations that that Romania had after the revolution, and uh, so we kept shooting because it was the society was so hot, and you really had basically, even from February, I think, to May, you have constant daily demonstrations, basically. And so we felt we're in the thick of it. We're just seeing it's still part of the change. When do you know the end of the film? That that final scene, I think, is so uh, arresting and such an unexpected but beautiful ending. When did you have the end of the movie? Um... I don't remember, to be honest. I, I, I just know that once, you know, once I had a certain structure that, that was working and the hard thing was to make all these different storylines work together in one, you know... Cohesive narrative, yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think, I think when I saw, I mean, when I, yeah, when I saw the, when I saw the, the scene within that structure, I understood that there's no, nothing more to say. So um, I think for a long time, we tried to build, you know, from all the footage we've shot, we tried to build the, all the long narrative, basically. But it just felt like two different films. So 
So the I want to go back to the access question because you, you've explained how you get the access to the to the newsroom. Um, when it comes to the minister uh, of health, the new minister of health, Vlad, what's the process? Because it's it's astounding access that you have from you know his immediate point of entry through that incredible phone call with his father. Um, yeah. You know, as he's driving out, talk about the process of getting access there and the construction of that story. Yeah, so basically, uh, the journalists we're seeing, uh, the investigation brings down a minister of health, right? So he resigns. And so rumors started basically who would be appointed, or, and at a certain point, I heard. That this this minister, this very young patients activist, actually uh, Vlad, uh, might be appointed, and uh, I started to ask around who who knows him, and had, I had a filmmaker friend who did a film uh, for HBO about people smuggling unavailable medicine for cancer patients into Romania, which was a network that also Vlad basically uh, started from Vienna. Uh, and they put me in contact with him and I start calling him. Uh, and I think after a week or so, he answered and um, agreed to, uh, to have a meeting. I explained to him what I'm doing. Um, and luckily, he and his team, I think it was also a, a team decision, were courageous enough to let me film their mandate, basically, their... Uh, you know, their work within the, the ministry, they were just starting out. Uh, and I think there are different things. I think on the one hand, maybe it was also, you know, a thing that they thought it might be good to have someone filming what is happening here because they were basically expecting, I guess, things to get ugly if they really want to to make some changes in the, in the feudal and corrupt medical system. Uh, but on the other hand, I had a very clear understanding with him and I told him this can only work if you never ever tell me to stop the camera in front of other people because the whole ministry will hate you and will hate me for getting in you know I think it was never done that someone enters a, a, you know a, such a corrupt ministry with a camera right all and every day <laughs> and that made a lot of people nervous and I must say that that was really uh, courageous of him, right? To to take incredibly on him, and um, and and he really stuck to it. I mean, it was clear that you know, if people would enter a situation, people that didn't know me, or you know, we would for sure stop and ask if people. So we never basically uh, violated people's rights if they don't want to be filmed, right? Uh, but luckily, all you see in the film, you know, people agreed. Uh, for sure, there's one scene where someone was on the on the speaker on the phone that uh, mm -hmm, basically mm -hmm. admits it's an in front scene. of the min minister uh, uh, to be to lie to the press and to stay corrupt, <laughs> uh, and that was luck. But uh, you know that's uh, public interest. So so sorry for the guy. And. Um... That scene in the car that I referred to as he's, you know, in the aftermath of the Social Democrats being reelected and the kind of 
I guess, the collapse of the dream in some fundamental way of, of, of sort of societal change. You're exploring something that you're talking about now, which is the legacy of the kind of totalitarian form of government, like societal and institutional change inherently is incredibly slow and incremental. And I think that, you know, this film is sort of a case study in that. And uh, democracy, even as we see in, in this country, is very fraught and on the verge of, you know, failing at the moment. But talk about that a little bit, kind of the legacy of that totalitarian society and the institutional nature, because it is, in some ways, a portrait of a you know, a failed state or, or a state that's in, that's fundamentally failing. Talk, talk more about that. Yeah, it's a really broad scene, uh, uh, theme, right? Because so many things are happening, but in the end, it's so very simple, right? So you have the legacy is basically what a bunch of uh, almost illiterate uh, people that never did anything in their lives than just being in politics, like in a communist system and robbing the state, right? Uh, and that was continued basically. So it's just the power stayed for the last 30 years in between the same people and two or three political parties. These people would just, you know, go from one party to the other, depending on which party just won the elections. But actually they are all pretty much the same, populated with, you know, we have one of the biggest scandals now in Romania since several years is that all these politicians, including the present prime minister of Romania, plagiarized all their uh, PhD uh, theses. Wow. So right now, the Romanian prime minister who plagiarized, who, who was a colonel in the army and was in Iraq, but is yeah, a really simple, a pretty, pretty simple guy. But still, he is basically a thief, right? So he plagiarized his... So, and he's covered by the president of the country. The minister of justice changed <clears throat> the legal system just to let you know, for, for, for this uh, prime minister to get through with it. Uh, the commission that is about to, that was about to analyze his work was dissolved politically. So, and I think this describes pretty good, you know, <laughs> what the whole yeah, system profoundly. is. And profoundly. I think uh, it also sheds a pretty good light on the same situation you have in the States with Trump, right? So he steals documents, you know, someone that was appointed by him appoints someone who, you know, someone else who is taking care of uh, re revising these documents. It's it's all just a clique of corrupt people that take over the state, and uh, the result is an unfunctional state where the poorest and and lowest class is basically the one that is suffering. Well, and I think that. Uh... Two things. One, the choice of focusing on the journalists in this film. You know, journalists make such compelling protagonists, particularly in a fraught moment like this one, because it is such a noble endeavor. As, a, as an audience, you're so deeply invested in that quest to get the truth out and to try to make change. Um, and and in a way, you know, it's interesting your distinction between the sort of reportage uh, of, you know, con conventionally constructed documentary films. But you're doing very much the same thing that they are. By chronicling what they're doing, you are, in fact, um, 
echoing that desire for change in society. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't. I mean, I think that we, you know, we are following journalists. So because I'm very often asked, you know, are this kind, you know, are the investigative things the, the things that interest you? And I, you know, I, I'm not a journalist, and I don't see myself as a journalist. I see myself as a filmmaker. I just follow and try to capture in a cinematic way the work of journalists. So I'm not investigating, basically. You know, I'm not questioning. You're writing along. Right. Interview, interviewing, right? I'm just telling their story, basically. The story of the journalist, the story of the victims, the story of the parents, uh, the story of the whistleblowers. Um, and so I really don't see myself as, let's say, an investigator or as a, you know, as a journalist. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to, I mean, because you talk about, you know, the, the danger for journalists just to give you another example, the same example is this prime minister that is uh, a thief, basically, uh, kept in power also by all the attention America gives Romania because <clears throat> it is a NATO country and it is the border, NATO border, basically, right? So these thugs that lead the Romanian state can do whatever they want because, you know, NATO needs them to look clean. Right, to be a buffer, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, and to to seem to be fine, basically, to be responsible leaders at the border of NATO, which they are not. Uh, so they are whitewashed in a way. The journalist that basically discovered a woman, discovered all the, the plagiarized works of the politicians, was menaced by uh, anonymous messages uh, where she got death threats. The people sending the death threats were the the head of the of the police academy of the Romanian police academy. So the highest people in the hierarchy of the Ministry of Interior, basically. And after years of prosecution, all they got was uh, two and three years with suspension sentence. So the highest people in the state can just death threat basically journalists, and they just get away with it. And they're immune. It, so, it's yeah. reminiscent in some ways of, of sort of what we're seeing in Mexico today. I have a good friend, the journalist Annabel Hernandez, who's covered, you know, the drug war and, and the collusion between the narcos and um, several, you know, many administrations and government there. And when you get to that point where it, it feels there is complete uh, distrust or failure in those fundamental systems, it's a mind-numbing place to be for a society. How do you keep hope as a filmmaker and sort of, how do you keep hope? That's a good question. I'm not sure that, um, you know, so many things are going on, you know, with the pandemic and the war next door to in Ukraine, uh, that, it, you know, things are overwhelming and I think people lose hope a lot. A lot of people emigrated, basically. Uh, I think we had, after Syria, the highest immigration numbers in a country that is not, you know, there's no war in this country. Because people don't don't really have the hope that that political class can change because, you know, there's, you know, one, one you know, they, you make one step forward and five back all the time. 
right? And um, and if you see this whitewashing, this international whitewashing of um, of the government and the governing uh, political parties, it's just pretty disarming, you know, and you know exactly why it happens, right? Because we have Hungary next door with Orban, who is a baddie, you have Poland who are baddies, and so they need to pretend Romania is not a baddie. And, you know, as a society, the population and, you know, the educated class, so to say, you know, you're just looking at it, see how journalists are threatened, uh, and nothing happens, basically. And uh, it's hard to say in all this chaos where this will end or if there will be some black swan at a certain point coming up that will, in the end, you know, make these guys fall from their high places. I don't know. So I want to finish with one final question, which is, you know, early on in this interview, you evoked the notion of writing and writing, you know, while you're actually shooting sort of in your mind, what's the what's the coverage I need? What's the beginning, middle and end? Mm -hmm. What's the emotional um, valence that's happening in the scene? How much are you actually putting on paper when you begin, you know, and at what points when you begin to sort of go into the edit and construct scene construction, or how much of it is actually living editorially? Oh, I mean, I have, I just had them in the hand because I moved today in uh, our offices. Uh, and so basically during production, I write all the time, right? So I have my, my notebooks and I fill maybe a dozen of them, you know, so I write all the time, basically, while I'm shooting, you know, I think about what's the theme, what's the character, what's the personality, where could it, you know, develop to. Uh, and, I mean, related to writing, it's basically, also with the film, is so many characters like this one. My last one was a film built in between three main characters. Uh, this one has even more characters. And basically, while you shoot, you actually think as a like you think as a scriptwriter, right? Only that you do it in real life. You don't sit at the table and think like, so where does this lead me to? You know, where does this character lead me to? Who? Where's the center? Who is you know? Uh, and here, basically, you think about it, and then you know, okay, now we have to go out and follow this character for a while and see if these things really, you know, if things really happen. Uh, so it's. Um, yeah, it's a bit like having all these different strings in your hand, like when you're writing, only that you have to follow them in real life. So you have to take your crew and just go there, which uh, which is also interesting, you know, for I think when when um, when fiction filmmakers work like also like that, you know, giving themselves Mike Lee or right. Right, Mike Lee or others. I mean, even Ruben Ostlund, you know, he works for a long time and tries to find the film. He also comes from documentary. Um, and the films of these filmmakers I always find interesting because they, you know, they always have a surprise because these people, you know, they're alive. Things. They're alive. Yeah, they're exactly. They're not formulaic in a way that you think like, oh, I've seen that before, you know. 
Yeah, if we ever, you know, we've talked at some point about potentially doing a book because, you know, this has been a wonderful opportunity for me to connect with other filmmakers and understand the process and methodology that goes into it. But if we ever do a book, I would be quite curious to sort of, you know, if you'd ever be willing to share it, see some of that writing that that happens along the way because uh, it's a window into your sort of mind and process that I think would be fascinating. I'm happy to be part of it, sure. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, um, I, I just want to close by by thanking you, um, you know, first of all, for, you know, an incredible body of work and, and, and particularly for this film and for being willing to share how it is that you do what you do, because it's um, it, it's a very singular and very important um, style and content of filmmaking that you do and you're you're very generous to 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 let us look under the hood thank you sure i mean there's nothing you know i I think that uh yeah sharing is the only way of you know developing things further you you know maybe someone else comes in you know takes it one step further because it was the same for me when i decided to develop this form of of uh, observational filmmaking as my own I tried to push what I've seen with other people, with the Maisels. I mean, the Maisels and Salesman was basically the film where I was like, wait a minute. I was studying, you know, narrative filmmaking in film school. I was like, oh, maybe that's much more interesting to have real people, you know, having the ability to make normal people be bigger than life on a canvas. I think that's, you know, that's an art form. I would like to, you know, to see where it can go, you know. Well, you've done a you've done a brilliant job um, mastering it, and I can't wait to see. I won't ask, but I can't wait to see what you do next. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank uh, you so much, Alex. Thank you. It was yeah, it was a pleasure. A heartfelt thank you to Alex Nanau and all the people who came forth and entrusted him with their stories. I'm Tiller Russell. See you next time on the dangerous art of the documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please, don't forget to subscribe.